So today we are continuing in our David series. Let me give you a little background on David's life up to this point to kind of fill in a little bit of the, the holes in the story. So if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about, when Dr. Lawrence was here, he talked about David sparing Saul's life. Now Saul was in the palm of David's hand. Saul was hunting David down, trying to kill him. He was, you know, had such hatred in his heart for David. And twice David said, no, that's not my job. The Lord will remove Saul when it's time for the Lord to do that. But Saul continued in his hatred for David, and he fled Saul. So at this point, we're picking up today in 1 Samuel chapter 25, we're going to see here that David's kind of out in the wilderness. He's out away from Saul. He's out there trying to, you know, basically keep his head on his shoulders. He's trying to stay away from, from King Saul, who has it out for him. So David is out in the, the land at this point with his men. He has around 600, what the scripture calls mighty men, men of valor, men of war that are there fighting alongside of David. He's kind of got this little army that he's built up out in the wilderness. And so we'll pick up in, in 1 Samuel chapter 25. It says, Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house in Ramah. You know, this is very important. We'll stop here for just a moment. Because Samuel had kind of always functioned as a father figure for David. If you remember, who was it that anointed David to be the next king of Israel? It was the prophet Samuel. He was kind of a spiritual mentor, the one who believed in David when nobody else did. And now... He's gone. I would imagine that David feels a little shaken at, at this point in his life. Let's keep reading. It says, Then David rose and went down into the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man of Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. You know, simply owning land in that day would have made you very, very rich, just to be a landowner. But to have 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats to put with that would make you a part of the 1%. It would be like having a fleet of Lamborghinis and a vacation home in Turk and Caicos. That was this man that the scripture is talking about. That's how, the best way I can put into perspective how wealthy this man is. Let's keep reading here, verse 3. Now, the name of this man was Nabal and his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and behaved badly. He was a Calebite. So let me summarize the next few verses for you to, to kind of bring us through this story. David and his men had been staying in the vicinity of Nabal and his flocks and herds. And uh, around the pastures. And a number of times, David's men protected Nabal's flocks from raiding um, Philistines who would come across and they would try to, to take some of Nabal's herds. And they sacrificially were helpful to Nabal's shepherds, even putting their life on the line for Nabal's flock. And verse 16 says that David had been like a shield wall for Nabal. Well, in those days, it was customary once a year at the time of sheep shearing to give a thank you gift to those who had assisted you. 
So David has sent his young men to ask for it. It was basically, it was something in that culture that was kind of assumed. Okay, I helped your flocks grow to this point. You kind of give back to those who, who helped. But Nabal rejected the men. And to make matters worse, he sent them away with a stinging insult. Let's see in verse 10. It said, And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Now, he knows who David is. Remember last week we talked about David and Goliath. He knows exactly who David is. Not only does he not show gratitude, he takes a shot at David and calls him a runaway slave. Like That's like a huge insult. Plus, you add Nabal's insult, I, I think it was touched on a tender spot for David. Remember, we talked about how David was the runt of the family. David was last in the line. His father, Jesse, even when, when Samuel came to anoint the king, it was David was the last one. Now, like his father, Jesse, even forgot that David was out in the fields watching the flocks. So David kind of had this, you know, probably hit this chip on his shoulder. You know, that's not a wound you recover easily from. And for David's whole life, I'm sure he felt overlooked. And then Saul publicly smears him and exiles him. He tells everybody that David is a traitor, an opportunist. And I'm sure this insult from Nabal just played on those insecurities. Let's see how David responds. David, in in verse 13, he says, that's it. Everybody strap on your sword. Here we go. Verse 21. He said, now David had said, surely... In vain, I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. Now think, David's tired, he's worn out, he's out in the wilderness, and this guy is playing on his deepest insecurities, and David loses his marbles. He just loses it. Well, Nabal had a wife named Abigail, as we saw in verse 3. And if you remember, she was, what does Scripture say about her? Discerning and beautiful. You could say discerning being another way of saying she was wise and beautiful. So Abigail, she gets wind of what's happened. She kind of hear, you know, hears through the grapevine that, oh no, my stupid husband has just bit the hand that has been helping him all of this time. Verse 18, so she's going to jump into action. It says, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. So she gets all of this food together. She hears that David is coming for Nabal. She goes, all right, I've got to intercede. So she goes off to head David off before he gets to Nabal. David just has this fiery vengeance on him, like, I'm going to set things right. Verse 24, we see that Abigail comes upon David and says, She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow 
Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Now, Nabal's name in Hebrew, it literally means fool. Like, it, it means fool. You know, we don't know if it originated from another language or if it was a nickname that his buddies gave him because I'm having a hard time thinking that any parent would knowingly name their child fool. So that, it, this tells you about the man that we are dealing with in, in this story. You know, I've heard some crazy name stories. Have you, have you ever heard a name? And you're like, man, why did they name the child that? Yeah, I, I heard about a guy who his last name was H-O-G-G, pronounced hog. That was the last name. There, That is somewhat of a common last name. But he had twin girls. The first one was Yura, and the last name was, or the, uh, the other twin was Ima. You're a hog, I'm a hog. Can you imagine naming your twin girls that? Yeah, that's, that's, there's all kinds of, of crazy names out there that we have all heard. But, you know, you think, what were those parents thinking? But I can't imagine a parent ever naming a child fool. You fool. That is just such an insult. We don't know if this name was from another language or if it was just a nickname. Either way, that's what his name is. It says Nabal is his name and folly is with him. His name is fool. Ladies, that is not exactly, and when she says, you know, his name is, so he is basically saying, he is stupid, basically what she was calling her husband to David. You know, ladies, that's not exactly a model for how you should talk about your husband. But when soldiers are bearing down to come kill every male in your household, you have to kind of do what you need to do to save their lives. He says, but I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord for whom you have sent. I love this. She's basically saying, David, I didn't know you sent men. Had you sent men... I would have taken care of them. Next time you send them, tell them to come see the lady of the house. I will make sure that they are taken care of. Now listen to what she says next, verse 29. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Now, I, I love this verse. What is she doing here? What is she talking about? She's rem reminding David of the promises of God, who, is, who he is in the Lord and what God has promised to do for him. She's reminding him. Now, did you see the word that she brought up here twice? Sling. Sling in her statement. And what is she trying to do? She's trying to very subtly and very artfully remind David, hey David, remember how God took out Goliath for you? Remember it's God who fights your battles. You don't have to take matters into your own hands because God is with you. Man, she's wise. Let's see how, what else she says. Verse 30, And the Lord has done to my Lord according to all 
the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. Man, this is so wise. What she's saying here is, David, when you become king, when you take the throne, you're going to have to tell the story of how you got there. And when you tell that story to your grandkids of how God put you on the throne, do you want to have a chapter in your story where you shed innocent blood? Man, how wise. Where you got insulted by a nobody, and because you couldn't handle an insult by a nobody, you shed a bunch of innocent blood? Man, she's, she's playing on his heart here. This is such great counsel that she's given David. She says, one day your life will be told as a story to the next generation. Will you be proud of the story of your life to the next generation? Man, what a great question Abigail is asking David. He learned to trust God and wait on him no matter the circumstances. This is something that God was showing David, and he put Abigail in his path to remind him of this fact. Faith means living today in a way that one day you will be glad that you did. It means living today in a way that one day you will be glad that you did. It means thinking about how you want the story of your life to be told to the next generation and living that way now. How do you want the next generation to remember you? The story of your life. Man, what great counsel from Abigail. It's verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Everybody at some point in our life has a lapse in judgment. We get caught up in our emotions. You know, David in the previous chapter is the one urging everyone else to stand firm. He's, in this chapter, the one who caves. When Saul's coming for David, it's everybody else who tells David, kill him. If you don't kill him, he's going to kill you. And David's the one that's giving the message of, no, God is in control. God works his circumstances the way that he wants, and here it's flipped. David's the one who's trying to take circumstances into his own hands, and God has to send him this reminder of, I'm in control. Follow me, be faithful to me, and I will work things out. And David recognizes that God sent her to him. He said, God sent you to warn me of danger. 
You have to be in a place where God sends those people to you because everybody has lapse in judgment. Everybody gets caught in a weak moment when the right combinations of factors expose vulnerability. That's how God answers your prayer for wisdom. We ask for wisdom. Many times God gives that wisdom to us in a multitude of counselors. When people make one of those bad decisions, it usually happens in the throes of an emotion. They were angry or they were excited about a new possibility of romance. Your eyes get starry at the new possession you might have. Then you need someone wise who was or who is detached from the emotion of that decision to bring counsel into your life. You need Abigail. We see here that we need today, we need the body of Christ. We need the church, a body of believers that have our best interest at heart and who will be an Abigail in our life. We need Abigails and you should pray to be an Abigail to others. Abigail is a model of godly counsel in every way. She speaks with calm clarity in an emotionally charged situation, even with so much on the line. You think about everything she had on the line. Her whole household was on the line, but yet she comes cool as a kosher cucumber. She doesn't freak out. She comes humbly She bows down. She shows honor. She doesn't come haughtily or filled with rage or self-righteousness. She comes kindly, bringing food and warmth, but she speaks boldly, honestly, and does not mince words. Best of all, she grounds her counsel in who God is and the promises that God has made to David. And God, please give us friends like Abigail, right? Amen. We need those people in our life. Ladies, God has made you to be an Abigail. Some of the best chapters of human history and for sure some of the most important chapters in church history have been written by strong, courageous women, women who saved the day when the men around them were acting like fools. As a dad of two daughters, I want to raise Abigails. I want to raise young women who will be strong and courageous and speak wisdom. We need the body of Christ. This next point is exclusive for the ladies. Ladies, you can be wise and a blessing to your family even with a foolish husband. You can be wise and a blessing to your family, even with a foolish husband. Sometimes a woman ends up in a marriage that is, shall we say, not ideal. Maybe she is married, got married too young, or maybe she got married before she became a Christian. Or maybe the guy has just changed, or whatever the bottom line is. She married, is married to a guy who is not the spiritual leader of her home. She feels trapped like she'll never be able to make a positive impact on the world or her family. What you can learn from this story is Abigail saves the life of her husband, the life of her family, despite a foolish 
bad husband. You can probably see how God has used that difficult marriage to teach you more about him, right? It's similar to how a pearl is formed in an oyster. The beautiful pearl starts at the heart of an oyster as an irritant, say from a parasite, gets into the shell there of the oyster. And the oyster covers that irritant and begins forming this pearl. And through the years and years of living with that irritant, it covers that irritant to keep it from infecting the rest of the oyster. And this incredible pearl is formed inside the oyster. No irritant, no pearl. For some of you, that difficult relationship is the irritant that forms the pearl that is God's character inside of you. God is using this to continually develop and make you a strong and courageous woman. You can go home today if your husband is not here, and you can go home and call your husband a pearl. It'd be a little inside joke that he would not know that you're actually calling him an irritant, but he would not know that. <laughs> but God is using this marriage to produce a beauty in you. And this is important too, just as he did with Abigail. God has you there to save the lives of your kids and your family. First Corinthians 7, Paul said that a believing mom and an unbelieving family sanctifies her kids. To sanctify means to set apart. Paul is saying that her presence in the home sets the children apart for grace. It gives them a chance to see the gospel lived out and believed. God may even use you to save the life of your husband. In 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul talks about many unbelieving men being woken up because of the consistency, the wisdom, and patient and faithful beauty of their wives. They see how you react to hardship, and it opens the hard hearts of their husbands. My point is, who knows what God will do with your faithfulness? Don't abandon your post. Learn from Abigail, even if you're married to a fool. I have a corresponding point for men. Men, don't be an A-ball. Do not be an A-ball. What a terrible story to be told about your life. Man, can you imagine having your name, your story recorded in Scripture, and you're remembered for the rest of eternity as a fool? Man, how, how awful. Don't make your wife have to go behind your back to accomplish these things, to get your kids in church to honor God with your finances because you're living a life of foolishness. Lead in such a way that her wisdom complements yours. Men, are you the spiritual leader of your family? Are you the leader in generosity? Some of you need to wake up about your Nabal ways. Let's read here in verse 36. It says in verse 36, And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, 
His wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Man, this is tragic for Nabal. But the author is trying to show us that just like Abigail said, God will fight David's battles for him. If David will just leave things in God's hands, God will fight his battle. David doesn't need to take vengeance on fools like Nabal because God will take care of it. That leads me to number four. You cannot accomplish the promise of the Spirit in the power of the flesh. You cannot accomplish the promise of the Spirit in the power of the flesh when life takes an unexpected turn, we have a choice. We can either take matters into our own hands or we can do things God's way and wait on him to fulfill his promises. Those are our two choices. We think to restore righteousness, we need to take matters into our own hands. That's what we think in our flesh So your friend is self-absorbed and insensitive to your needs. In the flesh, we respond by being aloof and distant. Your boss is a jerk. So you respond with sloppy work, finding ways to undermine him. Your spouse is rude and insensitive to you, so you are cold and petty toward them. Some family member lets you down or makes you mad, so you bow, so you blow up and scream at them. All of these responses are ways of trying to fix the situation by the power of the flesh. We think that by repaying unkindness with unkindness, we can fix them. Or because hopefully when the other person gets a taste of how they've hurt us, that they will change their ways. If we respond in like kind, that maybe they will change because they can see it from my point of view. But James 1.20 says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I'm going to say that again. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It feels like when you see a lack of righteousness in your spouse or your kids or your boss or your friends, that if you get angry and you punish them for what they did, that will make them wake up to righteousness. But James clearly says there is a wrath of man that does not produce the righteousness of God. Something else does, he says, the implanted word sown in grace produces righteousness. It's the word of God given to them in grace. It's the Spirit of God, the fruits of the Spirit being exemplified back to their sin that gives grace. We respond with meekness, forgiveness, and grace. That's how God's righteousness is produced in the world. Think about it. That's how Jesus changed us, right? Jesus didn't change us by paying us back for our sin. 
He changed us by showing us grace. God's law told me what I'm supposed to do, and his threats of judgment may have scared me into some outward conformity, but only his grace gave me the desire to obey him. You'll never accomplish the work of the Spirit by the power of the flesh. If we want to be vehicles of God's power, producing true righteousness in the hearts of people, loving the world, if we want to be vessels that God uses to build his kingdom, then we will leave the vengeance to God and respond with grace. Because again, that's how Jesus changed us. Which brings me to the last point of the story is, is David the king we're looking for? Is he the king we're looking for? In some ways, I wish this story would have ended with David relenting his desires to take vengeance out on Nabal. But the author tucks a subtle little detail that pretends much worse of the things to come in David's life. Verse 41 And she, meaning Abigail, rose and bowed her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. At first glance, that sounds great. Abigail's an amazing woman. She's definitely a good catch for sure, beautiful and wise. But this begins for David the multiplication of wives. Verse 43, David also took Ahoanim of Jezreel, and both of them became his wife. This was wife number two and three for David. David unfortunately begins to follow the custom of his day to exploit his position as king to have multiple wives. In Deuteronomy 17, God had explicitly warned future Israelite kings not to do this. This chapter is one of the first indications that David is not the promised king that we are looking for. You see, up until this point, he seems like he was. David was a humble shepherd boy who trusted God and lived with undaunted courage. Up until now, he has carried himself with grace, trusting in God's promises to carry him through. But we see here in this chapter first a lapse in faith where David had been succumbed to a vengeful spirit, and second, he starts to leverage his kingly privilege to multiply wives in direct disobedience to the command of God. We're just a few chapters into David's story, and already our hearts are beginning to yearn for a king that is more righteous than David. The point is that our salvation will never come from a man. No matter how strong or how righteous they appear. And this is an important reminder for us in this time of the year when it comes to an election season. Because many of us get caught up in the election season thinking this politician or that politician is going to be the savior that is going to change our district, our school board, our nation our state, whatever it might be, remember that man will always ultimately fail you. 
The point is that our salvation will never come from a man because for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Even David failed. Remember that no matter how spectacular a person, they will fail you. And I'm not saying do not get involved and don't vote. That is not what I'm saying by any means because it is our job as citizens of this country to go and vote. And I encourage you to do that. But man will fail you. Your, your father will fail you. Your mother will fail you. Your spouse will fail you. I, as your pastor, I will fail you because I am a sinner. In fact, in the story, Abigail is the closest picture that we can have of Jesus in this story. Think about it. She is wise, a discerning sage who rides in on a donkey, humbles herself, and then takes all of the blame for what has happened on herself. Even though she is innocent, she offers a meal of peace, which happens to be a meal of lamb, and by her bravery and sacrifice, she purchases salvation for many. David is not the best picture of Jesus in this story. She is, and we're starting to see that David is not the hope-for king who will give security and happiness. Those things will have to come through a later king, a king that comes through the line of David who will lay his life down for all of us, all of us who are treacherous Nabals. If we're anybody in this story, if you're looking for us in this story, we are the Nabals. We are. We are ungrateful to God for his kindness, for his goodness, despising and rebuffing his goodness. And Jesus, the true king, refused to take out his vengeance upon us, instead sacrificing for us. The true king, the king we are searching for is not David. It will be the son of David, but not just the son of David. He is the son of God. And unlike David, he will never fail you. He will never fail you. He will never falter or he will never be reminded that he must trust God. He will be the hope, not just for Israel, but all of the nations. And whether you know it or not, he is the king that your heart is searching for at this very moment. He is the king that we are searching for, that our hearts are, lear- are, 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 are yearning and longing for to bring justice, to bring peace, and to bring hope in this awful and wicked world. So I ask you today, have you made that decision to follow the one true king, King Jesus, and ask him to be your Lord and Savior? Let's pray.